Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Wheel of Fortune, Sally Ride, Heavy Metal Suicide, Foreign Debts, Homeless Fest, AIDS, Crack, Bernie Gets, Hypodermics on the Shore, China's Under Martial Law. Sounds like a serious subject, Katie. Oh, so serious. Hello and welcome to episode 119 of We Didn't Start the Fire, a song that's become a podcast that's a history lesson about all the biggest, strangest and most beautiful stories that have shaped our world. Billy Joel drew our crazy route map. We just follow wherever it goes. Cold War hot movie stars, big dogs, dirty dogs, tragedies and triumphs. I'm Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. Katie's school is out. Billy is in. Where is he taking us today? Well, Billy just has a hankering for communist China. Can't get enough of that crazy stuff. So how many times have we been to China in I the course of this lyric? I think this is lyric? once, twice, three times, Katie, because we had Red China. Yeah. Early Doors. We then had Chew on Lie. I'm still not convinced I'm pronouncing that properly, even though we had about 50 minutes of (laughs) practising. And now today, China's under martial law. What year is this taking us into? This is 1989, Katie. So this is almost at the end of our epic voyage together. I'm sure you remember this happening because I do. I absolutely remember. What what are your thoughts about it? I remember Tank Man. I think like a lot. Tank Man. Yes, like a lot of people, I would have been watching the news at my mum and dad's house on the Hertfordshire-Essex borders and it was the opening item on the BBC News, just that incredibly powerful image of a man standing in front of a column of tanks and the column of tanks trying to go around the man and the man taking a step left and stopping an entire column of tanks. Incredible. This was in Tiananmen Square in Beijing and it really seemed emblematic of where China was heading. It was a moment of just absolute hope. You kind of had this idea, turned out to be a little bit naive, that people power could challenge an authoritarian leadership and make a difference. This is still something that we're thinking about today, whether people can contend with authoritarian leaders and make a difference. Another thing that's so interesting, Tom, about um, China and how powerful it is, is um, we actually spoke to a few different potential experts for today who are Chinese, and they were too intimidated 
by even coming in and commenting on the situation because they still have family in China. And that gives you an idea, doesn't it, about uh, the, the power of Red China? It does. And I think also, Casey, we should put this incident in the chronology of that year because we are now familiar with what happened in October in 1989 with the revolutions, the people-powered revolutions across Eastern Europe and the fall of the Berlin Wall. Yeah. This was six months before that. Yeah, incredible. So we are lucky today to have somebody who is a historian of modern China at the University of California, Irvine. He is the author of Vigil, Hong Kong on the Brink, and he's previously written about the role of rock and roll at the China protests in the 1980s. Welcome, Jeff Wasserstrom. Uh, It's great to be on here. And talking about protests and talking about music are two things I really like to do. So having them both at once is is a double happiness, as the Chinese saying goes. And how do they say double happiness in Chinese? Oh, I was afraid you would ask me that. I don't want to even try to with my pronunciation, but I will tell you how to pronounce Zhou and Lai. It's actually so simple because Zhou is just like an ordinary Joe, though he was anything but ordinary. Joe and lie. There you go. So, Jeff, can you set the scene in 1980s China? Our previous two China episodes delved into the political oppression and deprivations. Were the 80s a time of loosening social control as they were in Eastern Europe? Yeah, there was definitely a loosening of uh, controls from the late 1970s, particularly Mao died in 1976. And then in the late 1970s, things started to loosen up. And it was always a bit of a push and pull. There was something called the Democracy Wall Movement in the late 1970s, where people called for dramatic changes, fast changes, and they were they were crushed. But there was a sense in the 80s that things were opening up again. And Deng Xiaoping was the most important leader in this this period. And he talked about the fact that it was okay if some people got rich first, you know, that there was a way that definitely markets were opening up. There was definitely some move toward more consumer goods. There was also an opening to the world. There was some music, some uh, literature, more literature was being translated. Um, The first translation publicly issued of 1984 by George Orwell came out in China just to give you a sense of borders being crossed. And there really was an idea that who knew whether this would include real political liberalization or just liberalization of markets. And a lot of people assumed that once you started loosening markets, then political liberalization would come. And this was at the same time when there were moves to open things up some by the mid to late 1980s in Eastern Europe as well, setting the stage for 1989. And it was also the time of of people power in the Philippines where there was a popular movement that toppled a dictator. Uh, That was an authoritarian order that was not communist, in fact, anti-communist and backed by the US, but it gave people an idea, including in China, there was some degree of inspiration taken from that idea that masses on the streets could really make a difference. Nice, Katie, to have our first tangential reference to Imelda Marcos and her millions of pairs of shoes, which feels (laughs) like they should have popped up on this podcast before now. I'm I'm interested, Jeff, what sort of music was getting through to China? Because I can remember as a young boy, the fuss and the hoopla when the British band Wham! went to China in 1984 or 5? Yeah, way I'm getting there was a big deal. On the American side, John Denver was um, a big hit. 
in part because John Denver had performed for Deng Xiaoping when Deng Xiaoping came to the United States. So I first spent time in China in 1986. I lived there for a year from the mid mid 86 to mid 87. And, you know, Country Roads was being sung continually. What happened in 1986, and this actually relates to protest, was an American surf band came. And this was like the first big international tour after Wham. Um, and it wasn't as famous a tour, and they were kind of like the Beach Boys. So they're they're called Jan and Dean. Oh yeah, Jan and Dean. Yeah. There was a documentary that surfaced where they, you know, they said actually that nobody seemed to know their songs, but they couldn't take that too much of an insult because people didn't really know many Beatles songs either. So they just started playing whatever songs they thought the crowd might know. So they did some Beach Boys. They did some of their own songs. They did We Are the World. They were just trying to introduce, and that was one song that that the audience did know. And they even did some John Denver, which was out of there. And this actually relates to the protest, if you want to get to that. That's but. funny. I mean, the, the only Janet Dean song that comes to mind to me is uh, Dead Man's Curve. <laughs> they did Little Old Lady from Pasadena. Oh, yeah. I mean, they did all kinds of stuff. Oh, um, yeah, of course. I remember that one, isn't it? Yeah, Little Old Lady covers from- covers of others. Yeah. From- <laughs> um, so there were different factions, it sounds like, uh, in, in the loosening up or the idea of change in the late 70s and the beginning of the 80s. It seems like uh, some people were definitely pro-liberalism, but others were, were anti. How was that playing out in the government? So there were divides, and um, Deng Xiaoping was sort of in between uh, the factions, which was one of the things about it. And But he tended to move against anybody who rose high and seemed to be pushing toward real uh, political loosening as well as the economic loosening. He was clearly in favor of economic loosening because he thought that the only way Uh, for the Communist Party to survive would be if the economy got onto stronger footing. And so there was a push and pull between people who wanted to open markets quickly and those who wanted to go slower. And then there was also a push and pull between those who thought there should also be some political reforms. And so Deng Xiaoping moderated between these groups. But when there were people who seemed to come to push toward, you know, kind of loosening up the politics, then um, then he moved against them. He he was not officially the top leader in China. He was officially just um, vice premier, but it was clear that he was the power behind behind the throne, so to speak. And he had these different potential successors. And when one got too far toward the liberal direction, then he was he was ousted. One of the oustings came. There were some protests in 1986 that were kind of less known, but. Um, kind of laid the groundwork for Tiananmen in 1989. And at the end of those protests, Hu Yaobang, who'd been one of the leaders, was ousted because he was seen as being too weak on the protests or too sympathetic to them. And then the 1989 protests started when he died and students turned out to mourn him and sort of said the wrong people died and or the wrong people are living on and to quote a Billy Joel song, um, the good are dying young. So you must have been there during those first 1986 protests. Yeah, I was. And it was really it was really exciting to observe. Um, there was a dissident physicist named Fang Li Zhur who was talking about China just couldn't move forward unless it democratized. And the students were inspired by his discussion. But it was also about ordinary life issues. And the students felt they really wanted to be part, fully part of the world in a kind of uh, part of youth culture around the world. 
And this is actually one of the spurs to the protests in Shanghai, where I was, and where the protests were biggest in 86, was related to that Jan and Dean concert. The students went to that. They were really excited. Here we get to be like young people around the world watching a rock concert. And they got up to dance, and the security guards made them sit down in their seats. And they felt this symbolized this kind of half-hearted opening up. And they said, you know, you can have rock music, but you can't dance. And that's just like other things uh, that were happening. And there was also a feeling that the people that were getting rich fastest were connected to um, the top elite, that there was corruption. That was another thing that angered people in 86 and 89. So it's not unrelated to Melda Marcos and all her shoes, you know. Also now making me think of the film Footloose. Um, with Kevin Bacon, with the the ban on dancing, Katie. Um, and that also makes me think about our, our earlier episode about rock and roll and how people, kids were tearing up the seats in theaters, yeah. rock around the clock. Yeah. Um, there's just something about uh, rock and roll that's inherently political. Why is it the students, Jeff, that, that are the conduit for these processes? Because the issues that you've talked about are affecting people across China. They're affecting the workers and the people who are in factories as much as anyone else. Yeah, I think it's worth thinking about two things about students. One is their their role as students, and the other, their role of youth. And so, you know, there are youth movements we know, and the rock and roll side probably has more to do with the youth side. And I, I just can't resist mentioning one other example of this. In Burma in 88, there was a big student uprising and a crushing of it. And when I asked one of the veterans of that, what inspired him, he said, one of the things that really pissed students off in Burma, there were all kinds of, you know, it was a brutal dictatorship. They were inspired by the Philippines. But he also said they banned the junta. Um, they were just trying to listen to Michael Jackson and the military dictatorship banned breakdancing. And they just felt, you know, a regime that won't even let you dance. I mean, this is this is part of it. But there is another part besides the youth of, of Chinese students, the student part of it. Um, there's a long tradition in China of intellectuals serving as the conscience of the nation. And this goes back millennia to where um, loyal officials could be the conscience of the, the realm by committing suicide if they thought the emperor was on the wrong track and wasn't listening to wise counsel, or there were intellectuals who would write petitions that would be risky to call on the emperor to change his ways. So students were tapping into this throughout the 20th century. There were really big student protests in 1919 in China, and they were led by students or they were started by students. And then members of other social groups would sort of have an attitude that isn't the typical attitude in, say, the United States. Students are on the streets. This must be something we should listen to because the students were seen as intellectuals in the making and were seen as this kind of loyal scholar of the next generation. And so the Tiananmen students tapped into that and um, workers followed them onto the streets. There were a million people on the streets of Beijing and hundreds of thousands on the streets of about maybe even a hundred other cities in China in 1989. And there weren't close to a million students in any one place. So uh, the vast majority of people on the streets weren't students, but they were once partly inspired to go there because of students. And before we get into the 1989 protests and then the following massacre, let's talk about how the 1986 protests were put down. How was that resolved? So they were put down by a couple of, of things that sort of augured what would happen uh, later, but they were put down fairly softly. There were just a small number of arrests, but there was a clear signal sent. It was okay that students were 
letting off some steam. These were, you know, an unusual kind of event, but it was okay, but it was time to get back into the classroom. And one thing that uh, happened that I saw in doing my dissertation research on old student movements at the time, but they put up posters, the officials did saying, now you're acting a bit like the Red Guards. And during the Cultural Revolution, the Red Guards, angry young people who at that point were loyal to a top leader, Mao, had created a, a situation of chaos. And so the students really didn't like being compared to the Red Guards. And they also saw this as a signal that if they kept protesting, they'd be treated like taking China back toward uh, the Cultural Revolution. So even though they didn't accept that interpretation of what they were doing, they thought they were doing something very different. They wanted to be seen as very different. They saw that as a kind of warning that the government was about to get tough. And so the protests kind of dissipated. Students of that generation also kind of didn't know how to protest. It, protest is a learned, rehearsed behavior. So, you know, playing to the rock and roll theme, you know, the first time the band gets together, they don't really know the songs. But when they they play for a while, or even if they they then sort of play just in in private, the next time they go into public, they're much tighter. And so I think of 86 is a dress rehearsal of sorts for then the bigger things that happened in 89. This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello, Fire listeners. It's Tom here. I hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people we talk about in this series definitely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way that your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Fire listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash WDSTF, as in, we didn't start the fire. So, that is betterhelp.com slash WDSTF. Eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious ready-to-eat meals. Always fresh and never frozen, each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat flexitarian, so with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. So last night I had the Moroccan-style almond-crusted salmon. It was absolutely delicious. These are no-fuss, no-mess meals. Factor eliminates the hassle of prepping, cooking or cleaning up. Simply heat and savour the good stuff. With over 60 add-ons like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks and smoothies, there's plenty of options to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. Plus, you can customise your weekly meals and pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. What are you waiting for? 
Head to factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 and use the code WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code WDSTF50 at factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Okay, let's dive into these seismic events in 1989 in the spring. How and where do they start, Jeff? So there were some students talking about like what what shall we do next time? You know, there there was a percolation of things. There were some meetings on campus of forming democracy salons. The the mid to late 80s was a time when just a lot of campus discussion was about how should China reform? Surely it should reform. And there was some inspiration taken by what was happening in other places. There was knowledge that there were some moves in Eastern Europe. There was also knowledge of South Korea. There were protests to do away with authoritarian, uh, to push back against authoritarianism. But then in 89 itself, it was going to be the anniversary, the 70th anniversary of the 1919 protests in China, the 200th anniversary of the French Revolution. So some students were saying, you know, this would be a time to, to do something, to mark those occasions. But then something jumped the gun, which was Hu Yaobang, this slightly, somewhat more liberal leader, but who then became a symbol of reform once he was ousted from the leadership groups. And then he died uh, unexpectedly in April. And the students thought, well, we can turn out to mourn him because he was still an official. He wasn't completely purged. He was just demoted. So the government had to let there be mourning ceremonies for him. And so the students turned out and they used it as occasion to talk about what was on their mind and say down with corruption. They also saw him as less corrupt than some other leaders. They pointed to other leaders whose um, children were getting special perks. And the anti-corruption theme really resonated with a lot of workers and, and others who were just feeling that there was something unfair about the way the spoils of economic reform were, were being unevenly spread. So they talked about democracy, but they also talked about uh, corruption. It looked for a little while like they were, you know, they were holding protests. They kept holding protests. And then the main newspaper came out with an editorial denouncing them and saying they were creating chaos, which was a code word again for the sort of cultural revolution period. And the students were really angry this time about that. They said, we're trying to move the country forward. You're the people who are holding it back by still having old men old men run the show and old men decide when a successor doesn't please them and doing away with them. We haven't moved far enough. And there were ways of saying that we thought Deng Xiaoping would be completely different, but maybe he's not so different from Mao. Maybe he's not so different even from the old emperors of old. And there were some posters that went up mocking the top Chinese leaders of the time as being like imperial figures. Do you think, Jeff, that there would have been a way for the leadership to head this off at the pass had they been a little bit more psychologically acute? So there's a lot of debate still about what was exactly going on in the top uh, leadership. But one thing that probably gave the space for the lead, for the protest to happen, or clearly gave the space, was that there were some high-ranking leaders who thought that more political reform might be a good thing, or at least that 
there was a need to get serious about corruption. So some divide within a leadership is often needed in any kind of situation. When revolutions come about, it's almost always because there's some division uh, within the elite as well as bottom-up pressure. So there's a lot of questioning about that and whether there were top leaders who thought, well, maybe letting the movement grow would give them an excuse to crack down, but also maybe there were genuine changes. And and it's also important to realize that there was intense scrutiny on what was happening in China because Gorbachev was there to meet with Deng Xiaoping and international news crews were there. And this was the first time, I mean, it was such a big event, the first summit between a Russian leader and a Chinese leader in a very long time. And this was a major international news story. And there was a loosening up of um, ability for the international press to be there. So that's one reason why so much of this was captured on television. It's also one reason why Beijing events loom enormous in our memory of it, even though there were you know, half a million people on the streets of Shanghai, but there weren't film crews there. And there weren't film crews other places. It's interesting, Jeff. Um, I hadn't considered that. So it was almost kind of a performative aspect to uh, the Chinese leadership to kind of go, hey, we're cool with a little bit of uh, protesting and people thrusting their fists in the air because, of course, the world was watching. Was there also pressure on Chinese leadership from the rest of the world or were they impervious to uh, West, what Western countries thought of how they conducted themselves? Well, I think in the end, it showed that when push came to shove, it's domestic uh, concerns that take precedence over the others. The thought was they could wait it out. I think that was one thought. And really to go back to this, the surprise for many people who, who knew China, I mean, including me, the surprise wasn't that a crackdown came and that it was it was harsh when it came, but it was a surprise how long the protests went on. And it probably was a surprise to the, the leaders as well, just how much these kinds of ideas resonated. I think they thought that by simply putting out an editorial, the students would disperse, or at least other people wouldn't join them. But there was something that developed where just enormous percentages of the urban population, at least, felt that the students had the right idea. And the students made some very smart moves early on. You know, there were their protests just seemed so reasonable. They tapped into a lot of Chinese traditions. They said, you know, we're carrying forward the traditions that the Communist Party is supposed to represent of equality. And they gathered in front of a monument to heroes of the revolution. Unlike Eastern Europe, they weren't calling for an end to Communist Party rule they were calling for a better version of it. In many ways, they were more like the protesters in places like Prague in 1968, rather than call for a toppling of it. Though, of course, 89 in Eastern Europe and China get rolled together because they were happening about the same time and they were connected. Katie, um, during the 2008 Olympic Games, which were in Beijing, I went to Tiananmen Square and I tried to picture what it must have been like. And it's almost impossible because it's mainly cars. It's a very different China. So, Jeff, can you take us into Tiananmen Square during these tumultuous weeks and months? Yeah, I mean, I've got to tell you, I wasn't there, but I've spent so much time watching footage and listening to interviews. And I was I was a consultant for what I think is a wonderful film about it called The Gate of Heavenly Peace that meant watching enormous amounts. But if you went to I mean, at the square, there were students from all different provinces that had kind of made pilgrimages there to be part of the event once it was going. There were members of different social groups, different generations, but there was a heavy student presence in the square. There was rock music being played. Sui Jian 
uh, played a song, had a song, Nothing to My Name, that became a kind of anthem for the, the movement. There was another called Children of the Dragon. And, and Sui Jian himself showed up at the square and, you know, was greeted by, by fans. He was kind of China's first rock star. So the, there was a lot of that. And there were, there were students reveling also in the fact of being able to just party and to not have this kind of tightly controlled life that they had on campuses. It wasn't just that the government had control over your political stances, but they were largely picking your job for you as you as you came out of university. There was an idea that it, there wasn't easy socializing between the sexes. There was a lot of kind of monitoring of romantic relationships. So there was just this, this kind of counterculture side. And I think it comes through really beautifully in Gate of Heavenly Peace, if you're able to see that. So if Tom and I were students at the time and we wanted to get involved and we were galvanized by these protests and quite frankly, we wanted to like go and ogle some cute young people in the square. Uh, how would we have found out about this? Was it Were there sort of coded messages? Uh, were, were there flyers up? W- would, we, would it just be word of mouth? Um, there was a little bit of everything, but there were points where journalists were coming out in support of it. So there actually was were some key moments when there were some discussions of it in the newspapers. I mean, that that's hard to recapture now. One of the things that, you know, in China at this time, work units were very important and, and sort of collectives of different sorts, like people marched under banners, identifying them by their university or even by their department within the university or by their union or by their work unit, um, even though union, well, not unions, but work units uh, were sort of like turning out because there was a sense that maybe this would end up being seen as as a patriotic, legitimate movement. There had been a big protest, which I should have mentioned, in 1976 when Zhou Enlai died. Biggest protests were at Tiananmen, and it was treated initially as a counter-revolutionary riot. But then in the Deng Xiaoping era, early in it, there was a reversal of the verdict on it. And it was said, actually, that was a patriotic action to try to get rid of the last vestiges of the Mao era. So there was the hope during 1989 that something similar could happen during the Tiananmen movement, even though it was kind of unrealistically optimistic. And afterwards, there was hope initially that maybe the government would reverse its verdict on on the massacre soon after and say that the students had been patriots. There was a real way in which the movement over time became a fight over whether the students be seen as patriots, which were what they were presenting themselves as, or as uh, counter-revolutionary creators of chaos. That kept it going. But there was word of mouth, students heard about things. There was coverage of the events in the international press, and international press got back into China through various means, including fax machines, and certainly news of the massacre was faxed into the country. There wasn't the internet. There was some early use of email among uh, Chinese intellectuals studying abroad. But within China, it was other kinds of, uh, of media that did it. News also filtered in through Hong Kong, which at that point was a very free media environment, certainly not controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. So, Jeff, let's talk about the tipping point when it turned from a peaceful protest to this massacre. What Happened. So there were a variety of moves, including just sending in some troops to just try to clear the people off the streets. And in May, the people pushed back, started lecturing at the soldiers and 
the soldiers actually turned around at certain points. There was a push and pull. And I think at that point, the government just made a decision. The party state leaders just said, this has to stop. There was a clear sidelining of the, the more reform-minded of the leaders that were left. Again, you know, this was, this was one of the most amazing things was just when masses of the people of China were saying, you know, this is our people's republic. We should be able to, uh, to determine it. But then the government just decided this had to end. And on the night of June 3rd and the morning of June 4th, there were troops of the People's Liberation Army that came in and they used tanks, but most people were killed by automatic weapon fire. Most people were killed on the streets near Tiananmen Square. There were holdouts on Tiananmen Square that kept refusing to leave, but then there was a negotiation where they could leave the square. And it's a debate now whether anybody actually died physically in the square, but there's no question that there were at least hundreds and probably thousands and that there were protesters killed, but there were also many ordinary bystanders um, were killed. So that massacre, there's never been a formal accounting of the death tolls. Uh, and it happened largely under the cover of darkness. So there was less footage, but there was some footage that clearly shows the shooting. There was some violence by crowds. There was so much anger. And not surprisingly, the um, official press made a lot of those deaths and said, yes, there were deaths, but tried to present it as though this tiny number of soldiers uh, dying were the real martyrs and tried to present as a riot something that only really got the aspects of a riot after the killings uh, had been well underway. These are extraordinary events that we're talking about, Jeff. And ordinarily, if such a thing had come to pass in a Western democracy or a, a country with a well-developed independent media, the news would have spread across the country and I'm sure we would have seen a vast reaction. So how did news spread across China at this point with the media so restricted and what was the reaction like across the nation? So this was one time where things like news being sent in across borders through faxes or through news from Hong Kong. I mean, Hong Kong, there was a lot of interest in, in Hong Kong and Macau, two places that at that point were colonies, Hong Kong, British colony, Macau, a Portuguese colony, and both due to become part of the People's Republic of China in the late 90s. And there were massive protests there, demonstrations there against the massacre. There had been protests in support of the, pro of the demonstrations and funds raised for the demonstrators. Uh, but then there were protests there and news filtered in across the border there. There also were just stories that were carried by, by word of mouth and people fleeing, um, going back to the towns they had come from, cities they had come from. Because remember, many of the people involved in the protests by late were not, well, I mean, there were plenty of Beijingers involved, but many people from around the country had gone in. And so the news disseminated. There were some protests after the June 4th massacre. And in fact, in Chengdu, there was a second uh, massacre, much less well known, not filmed, uh, Louisa Lim has an incredible book called The People's Republic of Amnesia uh, about the kind of forced forgetting of Tiananmen or effort for a forced forgetting. So there were some more protests, but it really broke the back of the movement. And it was clear that the stakes were really high of any further involvement. There were issuings of most wanted lists. There were all kinds of signs 
that the government was taking an incredibly hard line on this. Jeff, did the protesters ever think when they showed up months before the massacre to start uh, conveying their displeasure with the state of play that they would be killed? It's so hard to know, but I I think for many of them, they there certainly would have been a thought that this could lead to, to arrests, that there could be uh, reprisals. But the idea of the troops coming in and I think looking very much like an invading army. I, I don't think that was something that was easy to imagine. And I think it's the, 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 the People's Liberation Army, the whole story about it is that, and the Communist Party itself, is that this is a, an organization and this is a, that, that saved China from uh, bullying by foreign powers. So I think the images make it look like an army of occupation rather than an army of protection. I mean, it seems like it's a real psychic scar that it leaves in ordinary Chinese as well. I mean, how can they ever trust their government again? So it is. And I mean, I think one of the really interesting questions is how it survived. And it's it's it survived for decades now after that. And I think two things happened. Initially, there was an effort to spin the story to sort of say that there was a counter-revolutionary riot and the soldiers came in and showed incredible restraint and uh, some of them even lost their, lost their lives and they restored order. And there were actually books published, not about the massacre, but about the uprising and presenting it as a riot and there was crushed. And that, that approach to spinning the story just didn't work. There were too many people who either had seen something or knew people that had seen things and they trusted it. And so the government then reversed course and tried to block as much as it could discussion of this and just kind of send it down into a memory hole. This is, you know, it's it's hard to get away from bringing up these kind of Orwellian uh, discussions of it. But the other thing that they did was they tried to actually take, ameliorate some of the grievances that had made people so angry in the first place and tried to reposition themselves. And they knew what had happened in Eastern Europe and they really wanted to avoid uh, suffering that same kind of fate, the end of Communist Party rule. And one of the things that they thought, not in so many terms, was that one of the problems with Communist Party rule in Eastern Central Europe is that people knew that people in nearby countries that weren't under Communist Party rule were just living better lives in material terms. They had better stuff, they had more, they were having more fun, they were having more access to different things, they could travel more. And so for youth in the 1990s, the late 1990s, early 2000s, a lot of young Chinese were given some of the things that the protesters of 1989 really wanted, an ability to be part of global youth culture, an ability to travel abroad, the government not micromanaging their, um, their leisure time. They were given a lot of choices. I think the Communist Party tried to come up, they never said it exactly this way, but they tried something new, saying, what if we give people more and more choices in the non-political realms and see if that makes them put up with not having choices in the kind of um, political realm. And there are places that do this. One place that people, uh, that leaders in China were inspired by was Singapore. In Singapore, you can't criticize the ruler, but you have a lot of other kinds of freedoms if you just are talking about other stuff. And it's economically boomed and they they tapped into it. And I think, you know, the, the Olympics, there were other ways that they sort of said, well, 
China has this issue. It really wants the, the Chinese people, they want to live better lives. They want to live better lives than their parents or grandparents. And maybe if we give them more material goods, and maybe if we also keep raising uh, the stature of China in the world, that that will help too, to satisfy kind of nationalism. An intensive patriotic education was started in the schools to try to hammer home this idea that only when the Communist Party took control of the country did China start getting global respect. And so things like the Olympics, these were all these kind of spectacles to try to shift the conversation, to try to get back into an idea of things the Communist Party had helped the country accomplish or that had only happened once the Communist Party was in control. But it's still a real puzzle, you know, its ability to, to, to last after that kind of event. That's interesting, Jeff, because uh, that strategy makes me think of those big Silicon Valley corporations where uh, it's all about exploiting the worker. But, hey, you're going to get all the diet Pepsi you can drink and we have video games and reception. You know, it is. And actually, the way I've been talking about it is maybe think less about George Orwell's 1984, which is this very drab and controlling state. And in sometimes China to the Communist Party is like that. In some parts of the country, it's like that continually, Tibet and Xinjiang, where it's just kind of in your face control. But maybe and for a lot of parts of China since 89 and certain moments, it's more like, George, like Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, where people are kind of kept uh, distracted and, and happy through manipulated ways, and they're still manipulated. Now, when I, when I bring this up, when I bring up the uh, Orwell-Huxley thing to a younger audience, I, I see people lose it when I get to Aldous Huxley. So what I say is, have you seen The Hunger Games? So they've all seen The Hunger Games, and the 1984 version of this is the, the place that Katniss comes from, which is a stark place. Aldous Huxley's Brave New World is the capital. In the Hunger Games world, people in the capital are also controlled. They're under authoritarian rule, but it's a softer form of authoritarianism, and it's more about spectacle and distraction. Yeah, well, it's always worth updating your references. And everyone who hasn't read Brave New World, Katie, should definitely read it because it is an extraordinary book. Um, I think we should talk, Jeff, now about Tank Man, because every revolution or attempted revolution needs its icon, and there is no one who is... More important, I think, in terms of bringing what happened in Tiananmen Square to the world than Tank Man. Yeah, I think it's what I want to take you back to is before that that iconic photograph, this one of the most powerful images of the late 20th century. I thought the iconic image of the Tiananmen movement would be the goddess of democracy statue surrounded by crowds of students or even kind of exhilaration views of of young people dancing and this kind of utopian side to it. But then, you know, in a way, because the massacre was so brutal, and then that image the day after the massacre, um, June 5th, that was shot. And it was just such an extraordinary, extraordinary image. And again, it was captured partly because there were people there to film the summit who stayed on. And, uh, you know, it was hard to get all the international journalists out of there that they tried to control what people did. And it's, it's an amazing image. I don't think we've ever fully known exactly who the young person was. We know he was pretty young. It's not clear he was a student. He might have been a worker. He was dressed. Uh, some people thought he was a, a printer. But it is an incredibly powerful image. And it's a reminder to me, in part, that failed movements can inspire people too. You know, the success of people power 
inspired people in authoritarian states in the late 1980s. But I've, I've met a fair number of Central European, Eastern Europeans who said the tank man, the, the Tiananmen inspired them. And I, I, I was curious about that because it seems that, you know, when something's crushed, is that really what you inspires you? But they say they were so inspired by that kind of symbol of, of bravery. It's extraordinary, Katie, isn't it? In the course of this podcast, we've parachuted into various moments in post-war history. And I find myself with Tankman thinking about it from both perspectives. What's going through his mind? The bravery, yeah. just yeah. the incredible bravery that it takes to stand in front of a column of tanks and to look down the barrel of the gun. But also now I'm finding myself thinking about the person who was driving that tank. Oh, yeah. Because you have all the choices open to you at that point. You don't know you're being filmed. You're a column of tanks. A man standing in front of you can be got rid of in a number of ways if you're in a tank. That so is you make such the an interesting perspective. I would love to talk to the man who was in the tank and find out what he was thinking because he must have been questioning his life choices at that minute. I mean, the absolute humanity and the humbleness of of the person standing in front of that column of tanks. I mean, he probably thought, tank man probably thought, what other choice do I have? This It's now or never. I can I can take this moment and make it indelible. You know, you know, during that early period when the government was trying to spin the story in their own way, they showed images of the tank video of the tanks not running over the man and tried to say this shows the restraint. You know, and it just I mean that's that's the kind of way that the the storytelling just didn't work because you had for a Chinese audience thinking, well, why were all these tanks in in the center of Beijing to begin with? And, you know, and they would have heard stories from from friends who said, you know, the students were the protests were largely nonviolent. You know, what was what was going on here? So then they then they made that image the kind of thing that every year around the June 4th anniversary of the massacre, the tank man image is everywhere around the world except inside um, the People's Republic of China. I mean, until recently, it was shown in two parts of the People's Republic of China, Hong Kong and Macau, which once they became part of it, were supposed to be governed by different rules and be freer. And there on June 4th, people would gather to commemorate and there would be images of the tank man. But on the mainland, even kind of things that look a bit like a tank and a man standing in front of a tank can be knocked down. But I will say there are always creative ways that people talk about things they aren't supposed to talk about or show things they aren't supposed to show. And so in China, there's been a long-term block on the term 6-4 for June 4th, how it's said there. So you can't say June 4th in China without being censored. But what some people were doing until the censors caught up to is say, let's remember what happened on May 35th. So take a minute, but May 35th is an imaginary date, but it works until the censors catch up with it. So as you mentioned, Hong Kong was one place where Chinese could gather en masse to commemorate the massacre. I mean, the fact that it's more recent amongst the Chinese in Hong Kong, how have the Chinese imposed the crackdown there? So... I mean, in 1989, before Hong Kong became part of the People's Republic of China, there was a lot of interest and concern about the massacre because what kind of country were they going to become part of? After 1997, the deal that was struck between London and Beijing with Hong Kong people having very minimal input on this was that there'd be something called one country, two systems. 
that Hong Kong would become part of the country of the People's Republic of China, but would be able to enjoy a lot of kinds of privileges and freedoms that people in other parts of the country didn't have. And Macau had a similar kind of deal in 1999. And there was always a kind of tension. Would that mean just different economic forms, capitalism, or would it mean a free press? Would it mean more freedom to assembly? And Hong Kong was not democratic under British colonial rule, but it did have a degree of free press. It had independent courts that could do things the, the police uh, could move in its own way. And after 1997, to prove to the world, in part, that the Communist Party was good at its word, there was an allowance for a variety of things to keep happening in Hong Kong that skeptics um, imagine wouldn't happen, that couldn't happen in any other part of the country. So in Macau and Hong Kong, there could still be vigils to commemorate June 4th that there couldn't be on the mainland. And textbooks could teach about what happened there while youth growing up just over the border in another part of the PRC weren't learning about it. And so that became a kind of symbol for what made Hong Kong different. And in 2019, on um, the 30th anniversary, there was one in a long series of really big um, vigils, candlelight vigils in the main Hong Kong park. And I was there for that. And it was a very moving experience. And people in Hong Kong uh, gathered to remember what had happened in 1989, but also say, it seems like the, the, the screws are tightening, tightening on us now. And this may not be the kind of thing we're allowed to do much longer. We need to push back against various things that are being done by the mainland and by its proxies within Hong Kong, who were the, the leaders, the, the head of the Hong Kong government was somebody largely elected, but only from a slate handpicked by people loyal to Beijing. And then the protests swelled in 2019 and the biggest sustained social movement in the People's Republic since 1989 happened in 2019 in Hong Kong. And once again, it galvanized, it captured the attention of the world, in that case, because there was so much international media in Hong Kong in part, and because images of this very photogenic movement spread around the world on this new thing, the internet. Um, and then there was a crackdown. And since, since then, there hasn't been legal commemorations of the massacre. And many of the things that have happened in, in Hong Kong since 2019, I've referred to in others as Tiananmen without the massacre. All the kinds of mass arrests, the bullying, the intimidation, and the effort to mistell the story and to turn the clash into one in which it's uh, riots and turmoil suppressed by a police force, in this case, using restraint, when in fact it was something much more complicated and there was enormous violence by the police just because there, even though there wasn't a massacre. It wasn't as nonviolent a movement through most of it as the Tiananmen one was, but that's because in part, the police kept egging the protesters on and there was so much of a sense of things moving in such a worrisome direction that there, were, uh, there was some violence by the protesters as well as uh, police violence, but a large, percentage of the Hong Kong people kept thinking that overall through 2019, the moral high ground was claimed by the protesters, once again, largely by, by young people fighting to 
defend the political community they loved and to be seen as patriots. So it seems like what you're describing is an ever increasing speeding up cycle of locale Tiananmen's. And because of the internet, information gets out as soon as these things kind of spike. So whenever there's a protest, whenever there's a gathering, yes, it gets squashed, but it seems like the impetus and the inspiration gets out to future revolutionaries. Could these protests ever happen again in China at the scale of the Tiananmen Square protest? And uh, do you think that this could be the downfall eventually of the regime in China? That's that's a great question and kind of an impossible one. It's, you know, it's one of these. But I'll, I'll say a couple of things about it. One is that the the government proved very successful for quite a long time at preventing, I mean, the desire was not to have another thing like Tiananmen. And what, what they tended to do was allow protests to take place with minimal kind of crackdown if they only involved one social group or only were happening in one place. But anything that looked like it would connect people across social groups and across parts of the country was stamped down very harshly. Uh, the Falun Gong um, movement was clamped down very harshly in 1999 because it had those elements. There have been protests in China ever since. There have been large uh, worker protests at different points, but they haven't involved different social groups and they haven't involved simultaneous actions in different places until last November, when a really extraordinary set of mourning ceremonies, mourning ceremonies often are the occasions for protests. And when there were in the harshest part of zero COVID, when there were um, people who were trapped inside of a building in uh, Xinjiang and burned to death, there were vigils for them in places around the country that had some of the elements, young people, including students involved simultaneously in different places. So it wasn't the biggest protest since Tiananmen, but it was the first protest like that with those elements of youth in many places. The symbol of that became white paper being held up. It was called the white paper or A4 protest because protesters were kind of saying, anything that we say, you may say is wrong. So we'll just hold this up and people will know what we mean. It's also white as a color of mourning and also a variety of other kinds of reasons for it. In this way, in some ways, the tank man image was before the movement. In September, there was a, a person who very boldly put up banners on a central bridge in Beijing, um, calling for down with Xi Jinping. We want uh, freedom, not not uh, restrictions. And it was it was taken down, and he has disappeared, presumably forever. Um, but that was a kind of almost a form of political suicide, but with an incredibly uh, brave person to do that. And there were photographs taken. There was enough time for that. The photographs spread around the world. The photographs were banned on the mainland, but were kept alive in part by young people from China studying abroad, which just kind of showed that while there's been all this patriotic education, it's not complete brainwashing of everyone. And then in November, the, some of those slogans reappeared on the protests in China, sent back into China by young people. But I'd, I'd like to bring up one thing about the internet and new technologies, is they not only can spread protests they also provide the authorities with new tools of control and surveillance and ability to squash things faster and to take retribution more thoroughly. 
and to control people more thoroughly. So we need to somehow balance those two things about new media of communication. And it often happens and it's happening very much with the internet. One thing I'd love to end with, if it's okay, because this gets back to Hong Kong and it goes to music. Music's been very important during the Hong Kong protests. There were these things called Lenin walls borrowed from Prague that were inspired by the death of John Lennon and some of the, in the eighties in Prague. And then in 2019 in Hong Kong, they were adapted where people put up their views or hopes for the future on walls in Hong Kong and post-it notes. And some of them quoted the line from Imagine, you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. And so that song was sung a little bit, but other songs that were important were less, less expected. Do You Hear the People Sing from a Broadway uh, musical has become an anthem around the world. Though in Hong Kong, it was sung in Cantonese with lyrics that Tammy Ho, the local poet told me mean something a bit different in Cantonese. They, are, they mean, have you, who has not spoken out yet? But my favorite story about music and um, the Hong Kong protests is there's a woman named Denise Ho, who's a canto pop star. And she had a big following on the mainland. And she was not that political until the early 2010s. And she came out as a lesbian and started, started talking about gay rights. And she was allowed to still have her music sold on the mainland. At that point, she toured there. But then in 2014, in a kind of first protest of these kind of dress rehearsal for 2019, maybe, she saw tear gas being used against young people. And she said, I can't stay silent on Hong Kong anymore, this place I love. And she spoke out in front of, in favor of the protests and um, the mainland moved to ban her music. And the Chinese Communist Party put pressure on Lancome L'Oreal. She was a spokesperson. She was the face of their cosmetics in East Asia. And they were gonna sponsor a big concert by her in Hong Kong a couple years after this and they pulled their sponsorship of her and they pulled their sponsorship as well. And what she did was hold the concert anyway and make it a community event and people came out. And then in 2019, she stayed um, a spokesperson for these issues. Uh, she went to a UN meeting in Geneva to testify about human rights abuses in Hong Kong and also human rights abuses in Xinjiang and Tibet. And there were efforts by a Chinese official to silence her, to interrupt her. She held her ground and kept speaking, speaking out. And it was really, I think, one of the great moments of rock and roll uh, rebellion that I think we, we could end with. What an inspiring story to finish with. Jeff, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast today. I've learned heaps and my brain has been stimulated and tickled in all manners. Jeff, thank you so much. I'm totally inspired to check out these rock and roll revolutionary rock stars. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure. And if I've done, if I've gotten you to to go check out Swayzian's "Nothing to My Name" and songs like that, then I feel like it's been some time really well spent, as well as enjoyable. And can you give us a burst of that song? So I'm afraid I don't want to try to sing any Swayzian number, but. The most unexpected song that has had protest meanings in Chinese protests is Frere Jaca. People have put new lyrics to it in different times. And so I will sing one part of that, which was sung in Tiananmen in uh, 1989. And you need to know that Deng Xiaoping was one uh, leader and Yang Shangkun was another leader who the students disliked and that Da Dao means down with. So here's that part. 
Da Dao Yiga, Da Dao Yiga, Deng Xiaoping, Deng Xiaoping, Haiyo Ilio Mang, Haiyo Ilio Mang, Yang Shang Kun, Yang Shang Kun. Liu Mang is bully. So we can have it there. Well, that was superb. Stirring stuff. I am fired up. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter Kristen was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence or DV can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast, and my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved. How does it go, Katie? Dead man's curve. Dead man's curve. Dead man's curve. Wow. <laughs> which always went through my head whenever I drove around Dead Man's Curve, which is on Sunset Boulevard. Oh, it's in, a real place. Yeah, it's a real place. Oh. It's kind of near where um, Hugh Hefner's uh, Playboy Mansion is on oh. the west side of Los Angeles. Yeah, it is spooky. Katie, I enjoyed that very much. I have a slight regret, though, and that is that we didn't join in with Frere Jacquet because it is a round. So we could have had three parts. The thing that put me off, I was fine with Den Xiaoping. There were some other words in there. That I was, and I felt that actually singing the original words of Frere Jacquet would have taken the edge off it. It would have taken the edge off and uh, lost that revolutionary fervor. If you would like something else to listen to, make sure you do go back and listen to our previous episodes about China. That's Red China. That was kind of at the start of this whole enterprise. And Joe and Lai. Joe and Lai. Joe and Lai. And if you would like to get in touch, you can contact us via email at fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk or on social media. We are at Spread That Fire on Instagram and Twitter. And make sure you check out our merch collection at spreadthatfire.com. Ooh, I do like a little bit of shopping. Would you like to know, Katie, where we are going next? Because it is our final destination. I'm trying to live in the fog of denial that this is coming up to our final episode. So I haven't even exposed myself to what we're going to be talking about. What are we going to be talking about, Tom? 
Katie, it's a sequence of words that makes almost no sense to me. <laughs> Rock and roller cola wars. Rock and roller cola wars. It trips off the tongue. It probably tastes pretty good on the tongue. What is it? I don't know. Come back next week and find out. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates, Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.